Y'all feel like dancing? It's really hard right now for us to feel where you're coming from because we can't see you, we can hear you. If you make a lot of noise, you make us party much harder. I don't know how the security is here. I don't want to cause a problem. But if you feel like dancing wherever you are, get on up and get down. And it's true, Lightning Licks Radio is once again on the air. I am Dion, a member of Lightning Licks Vinyl Preservation Society, a collective of local record enthusiasts whose mission is to celebrate and examine our often unhealthy, obsessive, intimate relationship that we share with the physical media that is Vinyl Records. I am joined here once again by my friend Jay. Hello, Jay. Hi, my name is Jay, also of Lightning Lake's Final Preservation Society. Jay is also an actor. You've got your first film coming out very soon. Yeah, we do. There's a movie called Eugene, uh, directed by my friends Don Hessel and Alan Lefebvre, and uh, it's playing down at the Vidlings Film Festival down in Hamtramck next weekend, the last weekend of uh, June. So that will have already taken place by the time anybody was oh, going to hear true. this. Oh, that's true, that's true. But... So I, I don't know how you are fixed for time travel, so <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> Jay, the last time that we were in this basement, we were laying down what was to become episode one of Lightning Licks Radio, the mixtape. How did you feel about that episode? I wasn't completely embarrassed by it. <laughs> was, think, that, was that surprising? And yeah, well, it was for me. I mean, I don't know. I was like, I don't know. Am I going to come off like a blowhard? I don't I don't know. But it actually turned out pretty well. And I think we've got, I, I've talked to people and I've gotten a lot of good positive feedback about it. So it was pretty cool. I did as well. And I have a uh, confession to make. I listened to that roughly 1,500 times. And I don't want to get too far into the technical thicket or like how the sausage is made or whatever, but I think it's important to state that we try hard to make sure that we've got this warm sound of things. So even our voices go through a lot of analog equipment before they're brought into the computer. And if we have a music bed or something, if possible, we get it from our collections from vinyl and then we cut it up and then we put it onto a recorder and then the recorder goes in the computer and then over a bunch of programs and eventually married to our voices in the mix. And there's a lot of shit that can get screwed up in that. So you have to really listen to every word over and over and over again to make sure there's no hiccups. But that being said, I gave myself a day, right? And on the next commute to work in the truck, I listened to it as if I was listening to it for the first for time. The very first time. And I, like you, was not 100% embarrassed. <laughs> so I think it was a success. I think so too. But after that initial elation subsided, I was left with pure anxiety and panic because I knew we would have to come down here and start from scratch and do this again. And I had a real tough time figuring out what in the hell were we going to talk about that was going to be genuine and... And Dion, what did you come up with? (laughs) Well, what I came up with was from my fear of the sophomore slump, I figured we'd take it head on and that we would actually talk about the sophomore slump. And then my good friend Jay came with an even better suggestion. And Jay, what did you suggest? Yeah, the, so when you're talking about the sophomore slump, instead of talking about bands and or artists who fell into the sophomore slump, we decided that we were going to talk about records that we both loved that actually beat the sophomore slump, that were not only as good as the first record, but actually in some cases better than the first record somehow. And coming from Jay, if you know him, the captain of pessimism himself, 
that half full attitude, you, you have to capitalize on that. So that was a great idea, and that's what we're going to do. I'm only optimistic about music <laughs> as a general rule anyway. So we are now on to episode two, which we'll entitle The Sophomore Slump. Surviving The Sophomore Slump. Surviving The Sophomore Slump. Okay. Coming back bigger and better than the first time. Google, what is the sophomore slump? According to Wikipedia, a sophomore slump or sophomore jinx or sophomore jitters refers to an instance in which a second or sophomore effort fails to live up to the relatively high standards of the first effort. Thanks, sweetie. Oh, we love her. She says all the things that we can't, <laughs> as succinct as we cannot. Uh, while researching this episode, which is loose research, the cool part was I got to listen to all these records that Jay and I talked about front to back, sometimes for the first time. But I did also research the phenomenon that is the sophomore slump. And I can say that it is a real deal thing. There's scientific theory and studies on it. And a lot of it has to do with perception, but it's not just music, it's artists, it's athletes, it's students, it's professionals, it's everybody experiences this phenomenon of the sophomore slump. So it is important that when somebody's able to overcome that scientific terribleness, like we should talk about it, right Jay? Well, for sure, absolutely. And, there, and then in, in regards to music specifically, there is the saying that, that an artist or a band has their entire life to create their first record, and a year to create their second record and you put it under the gun like that. And so there's always that pressure, obviously, of coming up with something great when you've had a plenty of time to come up with that first record and much less time to come up with the second one. A lot of bands uh, end up reinventing their whole entire sound during the second record and start a movement in music and change the tides of history. We, we can't prove this for sure. And a lot of times when I'm thinking about the lineage of like musical influences, I think of it like a murder mystery where the detectives like got the cork board with all the push pins and the strings connecting everybody. Sure, yeah. But would there really be a Nirvana if there wasn't an ACDC? Nobody can say, you know, <laughs> nobody can say for sure. But those things are really uh, interesting to me and I like to get into that. And I was wondering if you would start us off with the first record that you want to spotlight that beat the sophomore slump. So the first one I'm gonna do is I wanna do Black Flag's My War. Of course, I was familiar with Henry Rollins and Black Flag. Their logo was on plenty of Trapper Keepers when I was in school. <laughs> right. And you didn't fuck with those kids. You know? <laughs> and I've actually read somewhere too that that's like one of the most asked for requested tattoos. Oh, no kidding. Ever. Still? The, the bars, still. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. It's, I think it's cool that kids are still finding out Black Flag. They're still getting into Black Flag. Or it's an old man who was just giving up, and I'm just going to finally get this tat that I've always wanted. <laughs> exactly. There's that, too. So <laughs> the thing with Black Flag is, obviously, they recorded a lot of like singles and EPs. So they've had, before they got to Rollins, they'd already had Keith Morris from the Circle Jerks, who was their original singer. Okay. And then Keith left, and then Ron Reyes was the second singer. 
And that's the guy when you watch Decline of Western Civilization, the mm-hmm. first one, the punk years. Yep. That's the singer for that band. Okay. And then he left or got kicked out, depending on the story you want to believe. And um, then, then Des Cadena, who was actually in the band, was singing for a while. And then it, towards the end, he decided he wanted to focus on the guitar, hence the entry of Henry Rollins. My name's Henry, and you're here with me now. They were on SST, correct? That was actually Greg Ginn's label. He actually started SST because he actually used to sell solid-state equipment. He was into electronics, seriously. Mm-hmm. So SST was actually literally an electronics company before he made it his record label. I think Greg Ginn would appreciate what we're doing here, don't you? I, I might, yeah. <laughs> There'd be a lot more weed smoking going on if Greg Ginn was here, but nonetheless. But he would completely appreciate that, yeah. And he was an uh, older guy. He, he was a guitarist in the band. Yeah, and he and he came in late. Like, and when you read interviews with him, he didn't start playing guitar until like, later in his life, like like. Like when he was 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Like he wasn't, he didn't want one of those kids that always had a guitar in his hand. He came in late to the game, kind of. Cool. So, yeah, so they had the three singers, and up until that point, they had recorded a bunch of EPs. So the first, the very actually first long player they did was with Rollins, and that was, obviously, it was damaged. Uh-huh. And there's, again, you can always debate all this stuff, too, but whether you want to believe it or whether you want to debate it or, or not, damage pretty much defined what hardcore punk is. Correct. And if they didn't define it, they are, like, cornerstone, a building block of what hardcore was. And uh, yeah, it's hard to disagree with that. I think anybody <laughs> that is, you know, has any idea of say, yeah, they're right up there. Yeah. And when Damage came out, it was basically what you know as punk. It was fast. The songs were short. It was very much whatever the cliche, whatever you consider punk rock or hardcore is, is what it was. And then there was some litigation issues with Unicorn Records, which was the label that put out the first record. And they were connected to a major label um, MCA maybe, and they were in legal litigation for like three years, where they couldn't put anything out under their name, under the name Black Flag, for three years. Because Black Flag was owned by the, yeah, and, like and an the, entity owned by their their record company, yeah. basically. And while it was still in litigation, the the, the judge said you can, you know you can't put anything under your name. So finally, when and when they actually three years had passed, they put out their second record, which was My War. In 1984, they actually put out three records, but the, technically their second record is My War. The thing that the, the reason I'm picking this as the beating of the sophomore slump is you don't you know as a band you don't very often change the course of music twice no and they did with damaged and then they came back with my war and the reason um basically the first side of that record is pretty much a hardcore punk record correct is everything that you know as hardcore punk when you flip it over to side two there's three songs on it every song is about six minutes long and it's slow as fuck. Right. And it is grimy. And all the stoners that the punk rockers hated would have loved side two of this record. Now, I did not listen to this record until you said you were going to, uh, thinking about highlighting it on this episode. So I, And I was shocked when it turned over to side two and all I heard was this sludge and this doom. And I'm like, what the fuck exactly. is this? And I still remember when I bought it, I, there was this weird little record store in, in, a, in a, this guy's garage out in Saginaw about where the quad used to be. And I remember still getting it home, listening to the first side, thinking, oh yeah, it's Black Flag. And then putting that needle down on the second side and you're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and and what, it, what it was, it was basically Black Flag is giving the middle finger to the whole punk rock community saying we're not going to fall under your standards we're not there's all these rules I mean in, in the Sex Pistols talk about that too Johnny Rotten or Johnny Lydon would talk about that too like it, beca- it was like such a free expression thing and then it became like you had to have the mohawk you had to have the leather jacket you had, there was all of these like uniforms and rules and it's the same thing with the with the punk rock thing too 
it, and, and basically Black Flag just said, fuck it, we're growing our hair out. Mm-hmm. Which was ballsy as hell. Exactly, back in the day, because, yeah. I mean, they would do these shows with their long hair, and they'd get pelted with beer bottles and shit, and take all sorts of verbal abuse. Those kids wanted to hear, like, the fast, aggressive stuff, and they were slowing it down to just, like, molasses thick, just molasses slow. <laughs> And it's and it's just, it's and it really it was it was like it created sludge rock sludge metal for the most part. I mean, you have bands like the Melvins and the, all those grunge bands that were completely influenced by the second side of my war. I mean, really, it was a game changer to use the cliche. Right, and in the '90s, when the periodicals were getting all these interviews with uh, the superstars of grunge, they would all go back to this record or this area or Black Flag or the Melvins or some SST group that really started off their journey into being musicians. And it's a pretty important record and I'm glad that you brought it to my attention. Like I said, it was the first time that I heard it all the way through and I mean, what a treat. Like I thought, I thought some of uh, Rollins' lyrics were quite sweet, which I didn't really expect. Uh, oh, the song I Love You is probably one of my favorite <laughs> um, Black Flag songs. And I just, I love that. It, it, it is. I mean, it's still, it's still kind of tinged with that Rollins kind of right. pessimism, but it is. It, it is almost sweet, actually. Yeah. Uh, he has a, a line, I conceal my feelings so I don't have to explain what I can't explain anyway. I was like, wow. That's pretty awesome. I know, it's great. <laughs> but then you still have, you know, you still have Rollins coming out right away on the first song. My word! I mean, yeah. everyone, everybody's against him. All of you are out to backstab him. And it's very, very Rollins in that paranoia sense, too, you know. Yeah, what a great record. Yeah, it really is. If you were to pick one track, could you do that? Or are we going to just have to sort of... Oh, no. I mean, I mean, obviously, you want to be able to just, like, you put the needle down on the second side. And Nothing Left Inside is the first song that you hear. And it's just, it's just an amazing track. It's just, it is, it's just so slow and, and sludgy and awesome. Awesome. I can't wait to fit that into the mix. We're going to keep moving along here. I, like you, Jay, had a tough time deciding what records I was going to spotlight. And initially I came up with two choices right off the top of my head. And I'm sticking with those because there's so many that you miss. And even as early as last night, you were texting me with like, oh my God, I forgot this one. I might want to do this one. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to change it up. And I was just like, don't do it because there's going to be too many that you know that you want to talk about. Exactly. And you thought of those first ones, initial ones for a reason. Those are the ones that are important to you because they're the ones that popped into your head first. Right. So we are going to talk now about public. Public Enemy's 1988 release, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. Which is a motherfucker of a record. <laughs> it is indeed. You can hear with early hip-hop, a lot of times it sounds like where it's from. So when you would listen to these beats, man, you'd be like, oh man, that's New York, that's dudes with the boombox walking down the avenue. This record sounds like it's Brooklyn on fucking fire. Agreed. Yeah, it is the soundtrack of revolution. It just sounds like the sonic revolution. Lyrically, I think Chuck D is one of the best MCs just because of his voice. He's powerful. Yeah, and his voice, I mean, if you think about when you listen to that record, because it's so cacophonous with noise and sound, and his voice cuts through like a buzzsaw. Right, and it's like they had to balance like his deep baritone with all these chaotic high-pitched squeals and sirens and steam whistles and just whatever they could get their hands on to make this record. Now the production is by the Bomb Squad which is Hank Shockley. 
Terminator X on the turntables, on the ripping turntables. shit up. Yep. Uh, Flavor Flav being the hype man. Yep. And then, of course, there'd be these S1Ws. Security <laughs> of the first world. <laughs> Indeed. So these dudes with these fake AKs or whatever, doing these military marches, step you know, and, and we doing can't the moves forget, on stage. We cannot forget Professor Griff. Professor Griff, Professor who got Griff. In, a lot, in a lot of trouble later on with the group, being the Minister of Information and, and having some <laughs> radical views, go figure. The guy in camouflage with the fake Uzi, stepping his crew, <laughs> like he's got some things to say that's going to scare us. Do you remember when this record came out? I do. It came out in 88, and I and I had bought Yo Bum Rush, the show, the first record. I had bought that because I would at that point I would buy anything that was on Def Jam, and I loved it. And I was nowhere prepared. It, like the other records we've already talked about, the sonic leap from the first record to this record to Nation right. of Millions is staggering. Like there was no way you could be prepared for that if the only thing you knew was Yo Bum Rush, the show. Right, and it changed the game. I mean, these these were samples uh, manipulated uh, on top of samples on top of samples on top of samples on top of samples it was like if you go to like uh, an internet resource it would be who sampled and you just look up one of the songs from this record you are going to get a reference of like 30 <laughs> yeah. artists long and to then, make one song and then like you said like tea kettles and these sounds of sirens and stuff and it was almost industrial like some of the sounds that they use were almost exactly. industrial in a sense too where it was like it was yeah it's just mind-blowing and i was too young when this record came out to hear it i would have been nine going on ten and so i wasn't allowed to pick this up but in 1990 when do the right thing the first spike lee joint was released on video cassette i went down to curtis mathis and convinced my mom to let me watch this movie um and i was so i was 12 years old i'm gonna watch this spike lee joint right no idea because it stars mars blackman that's what i thought so we take in this film and public enemy is featured in that film quite a bit with their song uh, fight the power fight the power and yep. then the video was on mtv Right, so I had to work backwards to find my stuff. So I was probably 13 years old before I was able to actually buy and, and have this record. And it was just before they had released their next record, which was already getting plugged by MTV because they were uh, re-recording Bring the Noise with Anthrax, right. which was going to be a real big crossover hit. I'm certain that they did that. They saw the success that Aerosmith had with Walk This Way. Yeah, Walk This Way and Run DMC. So I buy this record, I listen to it, and it just changed the way I thought about all hip-hop in general. Chuck D was all of a sudden the most important rapper in the universe, and I was for sure gonna draw that Public Enemy logo on my Trapper Keeper, because if you can picture it, and I'm sure you've seen it, it's a silhouette of a b-boy, you know, torso up, framed in crosshairs of a rifle. Yeah. And there is no cooler thing than a white kid in the sixth grade can have on his school books <laughs> than the Public Enemy logo. That was serious, it was serious business. <laughs> it was definitely serious business. The record itself, in retrospect, it's pretty militant. Yeah. Okay, so they're talking basically the preachings of Farrakhan and turning them into rap songs. And so I guess in this age of eternal wokeness where we need to be aware of everything that was said, I'm pulling the card and say, hey, we're gonna keep it just in context of when it was, because I know there's some sexism and some anti-Semitic comments that were made on this record. And I know that there is some homophobia with the Nation of Islam. Some of their teachings were kind of not hip to that kind of, but this right. was 1988. Yeah. And I don't think they went over the top with it. And even if they did, I still love this fucking record. I absolutely, I absolutely, <laughs> I absolutely do too. It's yeah, it's an amazing, it's an amazing record. It absolutely is. If you haven't um, listened to this record, you, you really need to. And I had a tough time 
picking like a choice cut that we're going to include on a mix later on in the episode because there's so many bangers now we could go with the singles that bring the noise right which come right off the gate with a short intro and just got you into the record uh we could go with don't believe the hype which is another which banger is a, which is a great song what i had that the one, the one i would play all the time again it would be she watched channel zero because that's another great song, that song is punk as hell. That is, a, that is punk rock, straight up punk rock. And, and that's one of the ones in retrospect where you're like, really, they're like, you know, saying the, the, the state of blackness is in the shitter because these gals are watching soap operas instead of what taking care of their kids. But, I mean, really, there is some pretty serious irony in that. Right, because obviously years later he did Flavor of Love and he was contributing to that sea of garbage that he was talking yeah. about earlier, <laughs> which he actually called it garbage. <laughs> right. You're blind, baby. So Flav, I mean, come on, really? But I do, I do want to tell the one story. I have a It Takes a Nation of Millions story that I want to tell real quick. I don't okay. know if we have time for it. I always have time for public enemy stories. <laughs> so when I, when I, I came out in 88, I was living in Maine mm-hmm. at the time. I was living in Portland. I didn't, I, one of the only times in my life I did not own a car, and I would take the bus to work, to and from work all the time. So I had my Sony Walkman knockoff, right. and I would listen to music on the way to work and on the way home from work. One day on the way home from work, and I had I happened to have this cassette. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back, and I had it fucking cranked. I didn't realize how loud it was mm-hmm. until the bus driver stopped the bus, walked back to where I was sitting, and asked me to turn my music down <laughs> in your through my headphones. <laughs> I can't imagine what that sounded like to people. Just hear all those squeals and all those oh all God. of that distortion. All they're that like, stuff "What on is that. this kid listening to?" Exactly, and I love that. I love that he actually stopped the bus. <laughs> walked back and said, you need to turn your music down. Well, white America had <laughs> quite an adversarial relationship with hip-hop in the late 80s, and, and you were part of the problem, Jay. I'm I, sorry I to say. I don't doubt that. But now, with telling your story to the, to the dozens <laughs> that are out there in the podcast universe, you are part of the solution. Yes. Finally, I'm finally part of the solution. So if I was going to pick a choice cut from this, like I said, it's going to be hard. Like, there's uh, the song Black Steel in the, in the Hour of Chaos that has this Isaac Hayes key sample and it just keeps progressing and the story itself is like Chuck D gets a letter from the government and he's like I'm not going to your war so he's a draft dodger he gets set in prison and then by verse 3 there's a prison break like I mean what an awesome song and so five minutes later you hear the same key progression like nails on a chalkboard and you're like (laughs) I need this to end like my brain and my body needs this to end but I don't want this to end it's like this it's like like a movie like I feel like I'm watching a movie when I listen to that song yeah so that's public enemy it takes a nation of millions to hold us back where do we go from there okay well where we're gonna go <laughs> where we're gonna go from there this one's almost too obvious and right. I almost didn't want to include it but I included it because I love the hell out of it yeah and anybody who knows about rock and roll knows about this record and I'm probably stating the obvious but I gotta say Funhouse by the Stooges right so I think this is like the most obvious for a reason. We're not saying, oh, it's Nirvana, never mind, and oh, it's this, and you know, I mean, no, this is for real. This needs to be talked about. Yeah, it's fucking fun house. Right. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, when you like, other people have said like, this is like one of the greatest records of all time. Jack White is talking about how the greatness of the record. I mean, anybody who, who listens to rock and roll knows how great fun house is and what a blueprint it is for music that came after it and how influential when you throw around the term proto-punk. Right. That a lot of it comes from this record. And that's 
that's what I got written on. But now I do own this record, so I just had to give it another listen, right? But in my notes it says, Iggy's Battle Cries, love them. The whole record sounds like a live session. It was recorded as such. But you can even hear the bass rattle the toms. Yeah, like, you can hear that. Yeah. Like, and, the, and the percussion itself is so like kind of muddied up in the mix. I mean, it's there. It sounds cool. Yeah. But you can almost see Iggy, I mean, clearly shirtless, like, Obviously. doing what he does best. I said it was a grimier, more violent record from the doors or something. A fucking proto-punk masterpiece. And you just said and it. And all of those things, all of those things are right. And it's funny when you listen to the first Stooges record, there's a song on there called Anne that could easily have been a Doors song. So it's funny that you mentioned right. the Doors. But yeah, because Iggy kind of has that Morrison kind of crooning thing sometimes. I also love the classy use of the sax. I mean, it fits so well. I'm a sucker for the sax. Any pop song that has a sax in it, I'm almost completely down. Just like if any like alt-country sound has that steel slide guitar, yeah. like fucking love it automatically. I love that saxophone and Steve, in that record. And Stephen McKay's saxophone is like incendiary. Oh, dude. Like, I mean, it, it raises that level, so that record, to a completely different level. Like, it just raises the bar on that. This didn't get like rave reviews when it came out. No, People were didn't know what to make of it. They said it was too muddy wasn't produced well enough and I mean, but I mean obviously since then in retrospect it's a masterpiece by almost every measure I don't know if there is a modern review in existence that doesn't give that a near-perfect score yeah and the thing about that record too the thing about Funhouse is, is it's a, it is a record that you have to spend some time with and it was funny because before we met today I was actually going back through some literature and I, was, I picked up uh, the Lester Bangs book yeah. Car- Psychotic Reactions and Carburetor Dung right. and he does a whole it's like a song by song review of Funhouse but he also talks about that he when he first heard it mm-hmm. he hated it Right. He absolutely hated it. Really? He said, that he said that he kind of fell asleep and he woke up to L.A. Blues. Uh-huh. Being like, oh my God, what is this shit? Yeah. I had to turn it off. And then he said he started listening to it like every single day. Uh-huh. And he said it took him a while before he realized what it is that they were trying to do exactly. Well, God bless Lester for that. I know. I love that too. <laughs> yeah. And it's such a leap from the first record because the first record is kind of like this snotty, you know, unwee ridden middle finger to the 60s and the love yeah, generation. Of course. But it was just a bunch of punk kids. I mean, obviously you could tell Ashton was going to be a rock god right away. Absolutely. But again, this record is a completely on a different planet, a different plane altogether. This may be difficult. One of the more difficult questions I'm going to ask you, the same question that I've asked you before, I'm going to ask you again. But if you had to take a choice cut off of this record, what would it be? You know, I was initially going to go with uh, TVI because it's such a fucking great song. But you know what? The first track on there, Down on the Street, because he comes right, like you said, he comes right out of the gate with the ow! Yeah, and it's just, God, and it's just it. there's just everything about the production that they recorded it live <laughs> in the studio. So I, the Down on the Street is just a great record opener, and that would be the one that I would pick if I was to pick one song. So. Okay. Okay, I'm going to go back to the new wave, back to the post-punk, uh, second edition by Public Image Limited. Now, I'm familiar, obviously, with Public Image Limited. Like, when Rise came out and shit, it was like, you know, oh, Johnny Rotten's other band, you know? Yeah. Can you talk about how the original vinyl came out? I mean, they, they had put out, obviously, Johnny Rotten leaves the Sex Pistols. Um, he creates a whole new band. He's got Public Image Limited, uh, Keith Levine, Jot Wobble. They had numerous drummers. They put out their first record called First Issue. It feels a little scattered. It's, it's not really focused. It's it, The production's kind of weird and off, but there's some really good shit on it. Right. And then they put out their second record, which was called Second Edition. If you have it in the United States, it was called Second Edition. Overseas, they put it out. It was called Metal Box. Right. And they actually put out, it, was, it consisted of three 12 inches at 45 speed, and it was packed into like a film canister. Right. 
So that was cool. I have never personally in all my years of like going to record stores and trying to find, like I have never ever, still to this day, I've never seen an actual copy of that. Right. If you go on some internet forums, they'll be like, oh, we used to use that as an ashtray and <laughs> this and that, you know? Yeah. So and it wasn't probably the best medium for like getting that music out there. It was, on gimm- purpose, it was, it was gimmicky. And if you read, you talk about they initially wanted to put the record out. When they actually put the record out, they wanted to put it out with sandpaper as the cover because they wanted it to ruin your other records, which Jeez. I think is hilarious. <laughs> so in America, they actually ended up just putting it out as a double album and they called it second edition the first one's called first issue and the second record which came out in 79 is called second edition okay cool and uh when i was able to listen to this i was really blown away because it's not at all what i expected it's not the public image limited that i knew right it's something completely different it's like these this this weird i i, I talked to you about one song in particular it was pop. I, you were talking about pop tones pop tones is like this never-ending swirl of like grinding and but at the same time soft guitars that you just don't ever want to end and I could not believe that I mean it's still Johnny being Johnny right like I could I could tell that uh, you know he was getting into his cadence and I could tell his voice but I mean the music behind him was something completely different and I just fell in love with it yeah and that thing I love about this record too is there's so much space in the record and, and you got Wobble Joe Wobble who was doing this kind of like dub bass but they're very influenced by like German kraut rock. Mm-hmm. So you hear a lot of like, like, can. like can and stuff yeah. in there too. And you could see, again, nothing's created in a vacuum, but the way that they combine those elements, they kind of created their own thing. And going back to pop tones, this is where I'm just going to get geeky. If you ever want to see one of the greatest, it's one of the greatest moments on television. Johnny Lydon is involved with two of the greatest moments on television ever. Right. When this record came out, he went on the Tomorrow Show with Keith Levine uh-huh. on Tom Snyder's show. Right. Google, go on YouTube and grab that because it's, it's one of the best interviews, <laughs> non-interviews, anti-interviews I've ever seen. But speaking of pop tones, mm-hmm. he actually went on American Bandstand uh-huh. and he did pop tones no on American way. Bandstand. Oh my and God. And it's great. It's the very first time. Like he basically at one point, he just throws away the microphone. He doesn't try to lip sync it. And he's like <laughs> grabbing girls from the audience and he's bringing them up on the stage to dance. And it's the most undanceable song <laughs> ever. And he's just this like, mischievous little imp running around the studio, <laughs> just fucking things up. So those are like two, like those are both great things to look up on YouTube. I'm definitely going to do that. Oh, they're they're amazing. All his interviews are, are pretty much great. Even now, they are. In uh, when you you know scroll through, if you ever see that in your feed, it's going to be a good interview. You know, it's going to be great. Yeah, for sure. If you're going to take a choice cut from that record that you have in your hands right now and add it to our mix at the end of this episode, what would it be? I'm just going to go with my personal favorite from that record. And and, and there's actually like there's like three. There's actually three um, instrumentals on here, and there's one on here called Socialist that uh-huh. I love, but I don't want to put an instrumental on there. So right. I'm going to pick one with vocals. My favorite song on there is a song called No Birds. No Birds It Will Be. Earmarked for the mix. Let's move right along. You got another record off of your stack right there. What do you got? Okay. The second one is another record that also, they, a band that kind of changed music twice. The one I'm going to choose is from 1987. It's Dark Lands by Jesus and the Mary Chains. It's a great record. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And, and again, the, the reason I chose it is because the first album came out. It was called Psycho Candy. Right. And, and it's a classic. It's a classic. I, I remember reading about it. I had I'd read a lot of stuff about them before the record came out. And I remember buying Psycho Candy. And I remember getting it home and putting it on the turntable. And if you've heard Psycho Candy, it's, all, it's like this garage 60s girl group stuff. But it's just swathed and just drenched in feedback. And the first time I put the needle down on it, I thought it was defective. Right. I thought I had a defective record. I'm like, what <laughs> is this? Like, it's actually, it's really funny. Like, if, if you turn all the sound down and you just put the needle on the record, mm-hmm. the record itself is fucking loud. 
right. because of all the distortion. And it took me a little bit to realize what they were doing, but they were, they were taking these really great, like kind of 60s based songs, and they were just covering them in reverb and distortion. And it's amazing. But the thing is, is when you put out your second record, what do you do? Yeah, that stick is probably, are you going to do that all over again? Exactly. And so the first record basically, kind of, again, no one had really done that up to that point, to the point, I mean, they used distortion and stuff into degrees that I had never heard any band. And there may be other ones, again, nothing's created in a vacuum. Correct. But to me, I, didn't, I hadn't heard anything like that. And for me, again, to go back, it, they did not invent shoegaze, but nope. they're a building block of shoegaze. Absolutely. And dream pop, almost to a sense. So they put and, no, and noise pop as well. Exactly. You can trace like absolutely. Yeah. And so you you you're listening to like that record, and like what do you what do you do after that? But they did the smart thing. They said, you know what? We're great songwriters. We're going to put up the same songs that we always do. We're still going to write these songs. We're just going to put them out so everybody can hear them this time. And then you could actually hear what great songwriters they were. And you could tell they were doing this 60s pop thing. It was kind of garagey. It was kind of psych. You can tell that they were definitely influenced by the 60s girl groups. But you could actually hear the melodies. You could hear the vocals. You could hear the lyrics. And again, just stripping away all of that stuff from Psycho Candy, just created this whole new world for Jesus and Mary Jane. Yeah, I appreciated how like in in your face the drumming was. Yeah. And then it was sort of just surrounded by these really effects laden guitars, but not to the point where it was feedback as much it was atmospheric, like enveloped in sound. Like it was really cool. Yeah, and you could really hear that they were really good songwriters, and and, the, and then their lyrics are always kind of I, I don't want to say gothy, but they 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 do tend to go onto the dark side, their dark side of their lyrics. Well, hence the the title of the record, the, I'm the, sure. Yeah, Darklands. So, and that's why and that's why I picked that second record because it's it's a favorite. See, I still again remember hearing it. Again, I, I remember buying that the day that it came out and playing that too and being so pleasantly surprised because you do you're like what are you where are they going to go from there right and they're like yeah we're just going to do this really great garage pop record and it's amazing it's an amazing record if you had to pick a choice cut that we're going to earmark for the mix later in this episode what would you choose i'm not going to go with one of the obvious ones because everybody will go happy when it rains that's when everybody knows but my personal favorite song off of um dark lands is called down on me Okay. Which is a, it's a, it's a great song. Yeah, and that's, that's one I didn't expect you to say. That's great. You're taking a, a dusty groove, man. <laughs> it is. That's it's cool. kind of like the epitome, too, of, like, of, uh, of Jesus and Mary Chain song. It's like everything that's great about that band, I think. Yeah, I agree. Okay. The third record that I chose for my champion of the sophomore slump is 1983's New Order, Power, Corruption, and Lies. New Order. Very familiar with New Order. Another album that I didn't hear all the way through, but a good one to dive deep into. I do know that when I started DJing for like high school reunions and stuff, like everybody always said, you got any New Order? And I was like, yes, I do. It's funny because they're one of those bands that probably didn't, they're like the one of those bands like Depeche Mode that weren't really huge, I don't think, in the Midwest, but like now that you hear them on the radio all the time, again, time is caught up with that, with those bands, I think, with a lot of those bands. Definitely. Yeah, so, um, and the reason I picked it, again, not to keep going back to the premise, but again, it's another band that, in my mind, changed music twice. Now, their roots are pretty well defined. I mean, they were Joy Division members, right? Like, sure, and, and that's legendary, and we don't need to go into that, because everybody knows the Joy Division story, and if they don't, you can Google it, Wikipedia, when you get home. They weren't the first post-punk band per se, but the thing was with Martin Hannett, who produced the Joy Division stuff, he created such a distinct sound for that band right. that he was as much a part of the Joy Division sound as the band A itself. member of the group, basically. Sure, I mean, his sound, he's like George Martin to the Beatles. I mean, he there are producers that bring a lot to the table, and Hannett was one of them. That's sparse, 
that, that drum sound, that space that you hear when you listen to those Joy Division records, right. a lot of that's Martin Hand. And well, obviously with, with Ian's lyrics, mm-hmm. it, you know, and then obviously Peter Hook has got that really distinctive bass sound too. A lot of those elements are now like used um, if you're trying to produce something that sounds like it's from that era, that's what you go to now. Absolutely. It is a, definitely a blueprint if you're saying, yeah, I want that Martin Hannett drum sound, or I want that, that Joy Division sound. And then again, we all know what happened to Joy Division. Ian Curtis hung himself before, they, before their American tour, their first U.S. tour. So what they did was they stayed together and they created a new band called New Order. They put out their first record, which is called Movement, which was actually produced also by Martin Hannett. They hadn't, it was so funny because, not funny, but they hadn't actually picked a singer yet. So all of the guys actually sing songs on that record. And it actually just kind of sounds like a continuation of the Joy Division sound right. without Ian Curtis's like really distinctive vocals. So it's definitely uh, sounds like Joy Division, but it, it, it's just a continuation of that sound. Did Ian Curtis write some of the songs? I don't believe so. No, no? Okay. no I don't think so. It doesn't say on the jacket, but it does. It just, well, with, it's really with, simple. With all the New Order stuff, uh, they didn't put any information. Yeah, of course. Jacket. Yeah, you can't really get much. Yeah, and it's an extension. It's just a further extension of the Joy Division sound. So they hadn't. They were kind of still going in that direction. And again, the reason I picked Power Corruption and Lies is because I feel like that's the record that they came into their own. It actually sounds like the New Order that you know. Um, it doesn't sound like Joy Division. It wasn't produced by Martin Hannett, if I'm not mistaken. I think that they actually produced it themselves. Oh, wow. And um, it's the first time that you really start to hear them use synthesizers. And they would use synthesizers, obviously, a lot more heavier when you start to get to low life and brotherhood and stuff like that, too. But these are definitely the seeds of what New Order became. And at that point, Bernard was the only singer. But again, they still had that really distinctive sound. You had Peter Hook's bass. And that was like the first time that they really started dabbling with synthesizers. And again, it's like we first started to see the seeds of the new order that we all know, basically. Was there any singles that released this that got, you know, a lot of acclaim or was it more they were just setting up? And again, I don't know. I know that, you know, back in the day when Factory Records were, I think that might have still been on Factory, was putting these out. I mean, they put out 12 inches all the time. Right. So I don't know what the singles were from this or not. I mean, the only song that I think that people would probably know, like this is the very first track. There's a song on here called Age of Consent uh-huh. that I think people are, are familiar with. Like if you don't know a new order, you probably know that song. You've probably heard it before. Right. And again, they changed, I mean, new, not only did Joy Division change music but new order changed music because they were like kind of one of the first bands that kind of like rock bands that were using synthesizers there were synth bands obviously yep. but using the like rock instrumentation and then synths on top of that they were they're kind of the first band doing that dance rock kind of stuff if you had to describe what the album felt like let's just put on your uh, pitchfork hat for just one minute I because I, I know you do i hate my pitchfork <laughs> hat. i don't have a pitchfork you don't hat. have a pitchfork hat no <laughs> okay i want to hear just a, uh, a little description of what's happening inside the album for those that haven't heard it yet and if you were going to try to sell them like you need to hear this because it sounds like this how would you describe that well, I don't, I don't, the thing is that, again they don't they didn't really sound like anybody else i mean they were like again a, the, the kind of like the first band that was well, that's doing, a that's a pretty good problem to have then yeah, really exactly i mean a lot of i mean all the stuff that came up from manchester later all the manchester stuff all the dance rock stuff the stone roses and all that stuff Man. all that's based on there was no band that was really doing like dance rock stuff at the time right and their stuff was very still moody mm-hmm. it was, but it was still danceable at the same time and not every song is danceable i mean they, they're one of those great bands that were able to balance 
kind of that moodiness. Right. But even their even their most upbeat dance stuff too. There's some dark stuff going on in those lyrics. Excellent. If you, you know? had to choose a choice cut from this record, would you be able to do that? Sure. I mean, obviously the one age of consent, but I kind of want to stay away from the obvious thing. I think there's a there's a track on there called "Leave Me Alone" that uh-huh. I think is completely representative of what New Order, where they were coming from, and where they were going to. Earmark for the mix and moving right along. So we got another post-punk, new wave, whatever you want to call it, 80s. 1981. 1981 record coming up. Who's that? Um, And this one is not a game changer. It didn't change the world. No. Um, But I picked it because it's one of, just happens to be one of my favorite records of all time. And that would be the second record by the Psychedelic Furs, which is titled Talk, Talk, Talk. This is another one that I did not hear all the way through until you mentioned it to me. And I talked to some friends about it. They're like, oh, God, yeah. Our friend Dougie was like, God, yeah. love you. Such a good record. Oh, God, and he's you not, gotta... And he's not wrong. No, he isn't. Again, there's some sax in there that I just fell in love with immediately. I was familiar with the Psychedelic Furs from Love My Way, which was probably 86 or something. And obviously from Pretty in Pink, which is actually on this record, although people from my generation will know it from the movie. Which they re-recorded to make it more uh, American radio friendly. Right, obviously. so it's a different if it's, it's a different version. I think it's a completely different recording. Yeah. So, yeah. Richard Butler's vocals, so very British. I mean, like, there's no mistaking it. Um, but he has an interesting way when he writes these stanzas, like, they don't necessarily have to rhyme. It's like what ties these stanzas together is, like, how he says shit. Right. It's not easy to get away with that. No. Without he, being like, oh, this dude's a hack. No, I mean, like, he made it work, and it was really cool. And he has a huge distinctive voice, too, because he's got, like, that cigarette rasp that yeah. just doesn't sound like anything else. Like, his his vocals are very distinctive. Like, when you hear him sing, you instantly know that it's Butler. Yeah, and, of course, the Pretty in Pink thing, like, anything John Hughes in America is yeah. gonna gonna impact like a whole generation of motherfuckers. It like, still does. Cross generational, right? right? Yeah. Like if that movie comes on, like hey, I'm watching it. I mean, <laughs> of are you course kidding you me? Watch it. So Team Ducky, Team Blaine, where you at? You know what? I feel like I definitely aligned myself with Team Ducky. Really? Yeah. I would have been that guy that rode my bike around the <laughs> girl's house around the block over yeah. and over and over trying to catch a glimpse of her. I think I would have hated both of those motherfuckers <laughs> because she wouldn't have been, I mean, Molly should have been hooking up with me, bro. Well, that's true. That is, what, what was your character? What, you, what was your character in the movie? I didn't exist in the movie. That's what made me so upset. <laughs> Like, I was, like, the, the neighbor, like, who lived behind her, but, like, you know, like, kitty corner. Like, I could see her, like, through the backyard fences sometimes when she was taking out the trash, and she just didn't know I existed. I don't want to know anybody that identified with Blaine. Yeah. Well, true. True. That's not a name. That's a major appliance. <laughs> no, I think anybody who, like, pined after a girl, and you can never, it's like, you get in that friend zone. I'm the king of the friend zone, so right. I definitely got the ducky thing. The yeah. The ducky thing. It's, he still didn't succeed. But the, the, the interesting thing about this, about that is too, and now we're kind of getting off the subject by, we're staying on it, but we're kind of getting off it. Right. Initially, that movie ended up with her ending up with Ducky. Uh-huh. But when they when they showed it to audiences, audiences didn't want her to end up with Ducky. They wanted her to end up with Blaine, so they changed the ending. What the fuck was with 1986 or whatever audiences that? I, I don't know. I don't know because oh, the original man. ending, the original ending, she ends up with Ducky. No kidding. Yeah, and and the test audiences didn't like it, and they and that's why that she, that's how it ended the way it did. They they wanted her to end up. With they the wanted some sort of like redemption for the douche. I guess is that a thing? And then they, you know then they throw in that thing with Christy Swanson at the end. Oh yeah, so, like so, she's so, winking at the so door. So Ducky still gets he Ducky still gets his in the end. <laughs> oh, come all, on. Suddenly, all of a sudden he gets. Yeah, his and then the end. cameras turn off, and he realizes that she was winking at the dude behind him. <laughs> I mean, come on. I that's not I guess not a universe I want to live in. I want to think that. 
Ducky, <laughs> Ducky and Christy Swanson character started dating. They probably didn't date for very long. Yeah, right. But I want to think they at least got together, at least. She's like, dude, get a car and up with a bike. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but back to the record. And and, and going, but I guess you bring it back around too because speaking for like pining for girls. I mean, I feel like talk 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 other than a couple of songs, it really is a teen record. Like every yeah. song is about girls. Like from the very right. first time the, the first song is pretty thing. Mm-hmm. Caroline. I don't know if every song is about Caroline right. or if they're from di- about different girls, but every single song is about pining for a girl or lusting after a girl. I think I mean you can't get more obvious than songs like Into Like a Train, which yeah. I think is one of the best titled songs of all time. Or I just want to sleep with you. I just want that was good. That was the other one I mentioned. <laughs> I want to sleep with you. You don't get more upfront. I won't bring you flowers. I just <laughs> want to sleep with you. Exactly. And it's it's just it's just great. But I love that. And going back to you talking about how much you loved saxophones. Yeah. Like I think was the saxophone's name. His name was uh, I can't remember his name. Oh, uh, Duncan Duncan Kilburn. Ooh, Duncan. Duncan Kilburn. And it, and, and it's cool because it, it's almost like these it's almost like walls of saxophone. Oh yeah. Like it's like it's not like saxophone in the traditional way that you hear saxophone. Mm-hmm. They, when the psychedelic first first came out and obviously we didn't have the internet so I'm not sure if this is true. I remember reading something about the band that none of them had played an instrument before they started the band. No kidding. That they were all kind of given instruments and were told to learn how to play it or they switched instruments until they found an instrument that they were comfortable with and that's what they played. All right. And I feel like they're a great band because they couldn't really, they really weren't trying to ape anybody. No. Although, although there are shades of other bands when you hear their stuff, but I feel yeah. like it's accidental. Mm-hmm. But I, I just, but the way that he plays saxophone is not, and I don't know, maybe he was a saxophone player before, I don't know. But the way he plays it, it's almost like an assault. It's right. almost like a sonic assault. He's like up front. He's just playing this wall. Yeah, it reminded me kind of like uh, how Morphine, how like that sax is like a big integral part of the sound of the band. And Morphine was another one where like, I'm like, oh, great, we could have done Cure for Pain. Cure for like, Pain, yeah. yeah. What a great record. But I mean, it had that feeling for me. Sure these horns fucking rule. And yeah. they're an important part of the song. They're not just an accent that they're going to put in a pop song because there's some dude with some brass, right? No, this was like a part of the band. Yeah, and in different ways too, because Morphine had so much space. So the saxophone was obviously a much more integral part. Oh, yeah. But I love the way Duncan plays, because again, he, it's like, Chuck D cutting through the noise from his voice. I feel like that, like it's because a lot of this record is pretty in your face. It's kind of dense in a lot of places, and I love how his saxophone just cuts through all of that. Right, and let it be known that this is the only podcast out right now that's taking a deep dive into Mr. Duncan Kilburn. <laughs> Duncan Kilburn, God love <laughs> Hashtag you. Hashtag Duncan. And he wasn't in the band for very long because actually by the time <laughs> by the time the third record came out, when you're talking about um, Love My Way, right? Pretty much the band had like it was just at that point it was just Richard Butler, his brother Tim and um, John Ashton, the guitar player. The other three guys were gone. So we've got this sappy, beautiful, teen lust record. You have to take a choice cut off of this record. What's it gonna be? Oh, I, I, I thought long and hard of it. Cause back in the day when I used to make mixtapes. Ooh, here we go. There were sometimes like where I couldn't decide on a song mm-hmm. and I would like pl- listen to it and I would end up listening to the whole record <laughs> because I couldn't decide on a song. Right. But for this one, I have to go honestly, into you like a train. I have to go for that song. Right. This is one of the best titles of rock song titles of all time. Yeah, I can imagine I'm writing it. <laughs> yeah, it's just fucking great. It's like, I'm into you like a train. It seems, it, seems, it seems so obvious. Like It's amazing that no one thought of it before. Right. It's how obvious it is. I know. You know but God, I love it when that happens. It's fucking brilliant, though. I love it. So the Into You Like a Train is going to be the song that we will, like, spotlight from that record. Sweet. Do we have any more records in your stack? Okay. I'm going to do one last one. Alrighty. And I'm going to go a little bit pop on this one. Okay. And um, 
we've all heard of the cars. I think I know of them. And I think we all know that the first Cars record is a classic. It is. It's an instant classic. I mean, every song on there, and again, I had read somewhere too, whether it's true or not, whether this can be confirmed or not, when the record first came out, they were jokingly wanting to call it the Cars' greatest hits. Yes. That's how great that first record is. Oh, really? Like they realized it or? I don't know. Like it, For them, it was probably just a joke. Mm-hmm. But in retrospect, it every is. goddamn song on here is a hit. Yeah. I mean, whether it was or not, mm-hmm. you know these songs. And I had posted about because um, the, the the album was just it just like had an anniversary. I don't remember what year. Forty years. Yeah, probably that's about right. And I had posted something about it on Facebook, and uh, a friend of mine went, "Oh my God, I didn't realize that was their first record." I'm like, right. "Shit, where do you go from that first I record?" I know. But you know what? I love Candio yeah. even more. Really? Even more? Even more? Okay. And maybe it's because I think Candio seems fresher to me because it hasn't been played on the radio to death. Right. Like I think that there's still room to explore Candio. Mm-hmm. Or, and as much as I love the first record, I've heard it so much. It's like it's just ingrained. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's more to discover in Candio. But I actually think that the songs are stronger. I hate to say it, but I think yeah. the songs are stronger. Wow. And I think that this, I, for me, like, although they're they're both produced by Roy Thomas Baker. Okay. But they're the, and obviously Greg Hawks' keyboards are an integral part to their sound on the first record. Yep. But I think it's even more upfront on Candio, so it actually feels like the the first record was almost like a classic rock record. Yeah. But the second record, for good or for ill, it feels more like a new wave record to me. And I and I also love too at this point too, and you could you could kind of feel them like experimenting a little bit because one of my favorite tracks on there is obviously the the title track Candio. Right. But the song preceding that, mm-hmm. Shooby Doo, you can tell that like because Rick Ocasek was a huge fan of the band Suicide, uh-huh. and you could tell that he, the Suicide influence. It's like on, on that song. Oh man, I'm going so, to look for yeah, that. Yeah, and they even, even got more into that on the third record, Panorama, which was probably their worst selling record, which yeah. is with the most experience. Well, I love that record too, of course, because mm-hmm. I'm contrarian like, through and through. Yeah. But I, I just think Candio is a great record, and I think it easily stands up to the first record. So if we can convince people to listen to that one front to back, that would definitely be one that we would say, hey, from this conversation, check out that second record by the guy, because you might be uh, surprised. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because everybody knows Let's Go, but there's some other songs on here that definitely should have been hits. And, and there are songs like Dangerous Type and things like that that were in a lot of movie soundtracks. Like if you right. hear those songs, you go, oh, I remember that from that 80s movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. But Let's Go was like really the only hit on here. So again, I feel like there's more to discover on this record than the first record. So you're going to put one of those songs on this mix. What's it going to be? Well, initially I was going to go with the obvious. I was going to go with the Shooby-Doo, yeah. Candio, have it going to Candio. But mm-hmm. since I was talking about how I felt like this was more of a new wave record than the first one, mm-hmm. I'm going to go for that. There's a track on there called Lust for Kicks. Lust for Kicks kind of exemplifies what I'm saying as far as like it being more of a new wave record. Right. It may even sound more dated than the first record because of that too, but that doesn't make me love it any less okay so Dion mm-hmm. I don't want this whole show to be about me because we're, we're all getting because it's all like new wave and it's all like post-punk so so we need you to break it up we need to like we need to get a little flavor going here so if you're gonna pick another record a record that beat the sophomore slump what would be your another choice that you would choose well uh, initially the second record that I thought of after public enemies I was thinking of D'Angelo's voodoo now, D'Angelo is widely regarded as a musical genius, but he's had like just classic cases of writer's block that lasted years and years, decades even. I think it was like and after... And disappeared for a while. Oh yeah, he's just, he's a fucking mess, right? But he is a genius. And off of his first record, which was Brown Sugar, which was massively successful 
not necessarily in like normal commercial radio standards, but like for whatever reason, like the R&B charts just loved him. But for me, I'm like, I'm not completely familiar with D'Angelo, but the stuff that I heard from him, it felt old school to me. Right. The production felt warm, like 70s R&B. It, or, you know, it, it just felt, it felt more authentic R&B than the rest of the stuff that right. I've been hearing. Right, and Homeboy was street too. Like he had a lot of hip hop sensibilities about, even in that first record, Brown Sugar. Even with the song titles, you can tell, like Jones in My Bones, All Right. Shit Damn Motherfucker is one cut. And he did this great cover of a tune, Cruisin'. Then he comes back after four years with Voodoo, which is just, it's not R&B at all. It is a full-fledged soul record. And it's soul like we haven't heard soul before. Now he enlisted the help of the Soulquarians, which was like a collective of musicians headed by Questlove, the drummer from, from, from The Roots, and right. now, you know, the late, the music leader of The Late Show. There was also Erica Badu involved in those uh, recording sessions. There was Common, Q-Tip, Jay Dilla. Like, I mean, all of these powerhouses of hip-hop and neo-soul, which was just gaining its roots, were all involved in the production of this album. And they did this thing, like, with their rhythm section, uh, specifically with their percussion, where, like, if you're making beats or whatever, there's this button that you can push, like, you're playing these beats out live, right? And you can push this button called the quantize button, which will take everything you pushed and like keep it in time, like take it more to an in-time time structure. It won't make it perfect, but it will it will get it closer. So you still got that human feel to it, but it's closer on time. It's not just you going, dip, 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 I'm white, I don't know how to keep a beat. You know, right. it'll you can hit that quantize button and it'll, you know pretty it up. What they did, these professional studio musicians, is like they hit the fucking anti-quantize button. So everything is played slightly off. Like, you would say sloppily, but it's not. It's either sped up or slow down between beats, but everybody's in on it's the in the joke. Groove. It's in the groove. It's in the fucking groove, it's and it sounds so rad. So much to the point where there is a story that Lenny Kravitz came into the studio to do some sessions, and he was like, nah, I can't handle this drum. He tells Questlove, he can't, he's like, your drumming's fucked up, I can't do this. And he's like, it's supposed to be like that. And Lenny Kravitz is like, I'm out, you know, I'm a rock guitarist. Yeah, and it's too just loose a, for me. Yeah, you guys are just too loose. I love what you're doing, but I can't be a part of wow, it. Wow, I And I that's how that. hot this fucking album is. And it's amazing, too, if you think about it. I don't really know that much about it. I'm just kind of checking out the, uh, the back of it, too. And I love that the label actually let him produce his own stuff. Like, out of the box. Like, I mean, you hear, like... Prince, like, yeah, he wanted, he, like, they let him produce his own stuff. Like, mm -hmm. you don't hear, like, these, like, guys out of the gate, like, right. a major label let them produce their own stuff. Right, and he, uh, of course, like, the, the most successful track off of Voodoo, the record that we're spotlighting here, would be Untitled, uh, How Does It Feel? And I was looking at the producer of that. Yeah. As the producer of them, and I was just happening yeah. to check that out, Raphael, Raphael um, Sadiq. Oh, yeah, of course. Who used to be, who was in Tony, Tony, Tony. Yes. Exactly. And, and those guys totally knew how to like nail that 70s oh, soul man. thing going too. So that makes a lot of sense to me that he produced that. I've not heard, I don't think I've heard that song. Yes, you have. I don't think so. You've heard that song. Okay, imagine a video and it's just a naked D'Angelo from oh, Waist Up yeah, yeah, and yeah, he's I, just singing to you. The camera. I do I do remember that. Right. So that was that, yeah. that was the hit off of this record. And that's the record that made him basically a sex symbol. And so when he went out on tour with these brilliant musicians that were doing this drumming technique that was like I mean, it was based off of uh, like JD's sampling. You, yeah, you familiar with right, Jay Dilla's right. work? So they reproduced that live. 
and getting this audience to groove with them, this soul experience. And when they would go to these sold out arenas, I mean, there'd be girls throwing up their bras on stage and they wanted them to be like Isaac Hayes or something. And he was losing his mind. And that's why he canceled a bunch of gigs and then he went into hiding and he pretty much disappeared for years. And then it took 14 years for us to get another proper record from D'Angelo. And I heard that the return, that they heard that re- yeah, Black Messiah. Yeah, it's, it's a great record. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Okay, so let me, okay, so I'm going to now return the tables on you. Okay. I'm um, on this one too. We're making this mix for the end of the, the episode. And um, if you're going to pick the one song to put on there, uh, what song is that going to be? It's another difficult choice. And now I don't envy you for having to choose all these tracks. Because when I look at this record, it, it's just full of bangers. I mean... They've got a song with Red Man and Method Man on it, which is a ba- I mean, you can't have a song with just one or the other. I mean, <laughs> right. it's like they're a duo, they're right? They're a team, yeah. You can <laughs> they're the How High Buddy duo of the <laughs> right. 2000s. So I could have went with uh, Chicken Grease or Feel Like Making Love, another brilliant cover from our homeboy D'Angelo. Uh, Spanish Joint, Devil's Pie, which is just a banger. Every song title know? is great, too, by the playa, way. Playa Playa? I mean, come on. Every, every song title is great. But I think I'm going to have to right the wrong here. Producer Dion, what are with you doing to that record? D'Angelo's Holy Grail, Voodoo. I would make Untitled, How Does It Feel, the last song on his record. Because it isn't. Because he's got this song, Africa, that is the last cut on the record. So the second to last song is Untitled, How Does It Feel. That was a mistake, D'Angelo. So <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, White Dion from Bay City, Michigan, is going to write that wrong. And we're reproducing this masterpiece. And in our mix, we're going to have Untitled end the fucking thing. And I hope he appreciates when he hears this mix that we do. And I hear he's a listener. And I, 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 I hope that he appreciates. He's like, oh my god, Dion from Bay City was right. I should have ended that record with that song. I got your back, D. No oh, problem. That's awesome. So we're gonna, we're gonna compile all these songs. We're gonna find out how they fit in the mix. The only thing that's set in stone, we're gonna end it with Untitled. And then we'll, we'll come back and we'll say our goodbyes. It sounds like a plan. Alright, let's get to mixing, baby. Alright. Just what is it that you want to do? Well, we want to be free. We want to be free to, to do what we want to do. And we want to get loaded. And we want to have a good time. And that's what we're going to do. Away, well, baby, let's go. We're going to have a good time. We're going to have a party. Ready? 
in a most unusual place. The state prison I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it. It said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. Picture me giving a damn. I said never. Here is a land that never gave a damn about a brother like me and myself because they never did. I wasn't with it, but just that very minute it occurred to me. The suckers had authority. Cold sweating as I dwell in my cell. How long has it been? They got me sitting in a state pen. I gotta get out what that thought was thought before. I contemplated a plan on the cell floor. I'm not a fugitive on the run. Brother, brother like me begun to be another one. Public enemy serving time. They drew the line, y'all. They criticized me for some crime. Nevertheless, they could not understand that I'm a black man. And I can never be a veteran. On the strength of situations unreal, I got a raw deal. So I'm looking for the steal. Word them up. I'm looking for that steal. Don't you know they got me rotten in the time that I'm serving? Telling you what happened the same time they're throwing. Four of us packed in a cell like slaves. Oh well, the same motherfucker got us living in his hell. You have to realize what is the form of slavery organized under a swarm of devils. Straight up, where them up on the level. The reasons are several, most of them federal. Here's my plan anyway, and I say I got gusto. But only some I can trust, yo. Some do a bit from one to ten, but I never did, and plus I never been. I'm on a tear with no tears should ever fall. Self blocked and locked, I never clock it, y'all. Cause time and time again, time they got me serving to those to them. I'm not a citizen, but ever when I catch a CO, sleeping on the job, my plan is on go ahead. I want a streak, but I'ma tell you the deal, I got nothing to lose. Cause I'm going for the steal. I'm going for that steel. And 
Now, joining me are Mr. John Lydon, who used to be known as Johnny Rotten, and uh, Mr. Keith Levine, and they are both associated now in something which is called Public Image Limited. limited. Is it limited or unlimited? It's limited. Limited. What is that? Is it a band? Is it a public relations firm? What does it do, and what is it? We ain't no band. We're a company. Simple. Nothing to do with rock and roll. Doodah. Doodah. Yeah. Okay, it's a company, not a band. Simple. What kind of a company is it? What does it do? With Public Image Limited, we didn't want to be or have anything to do with rock and roll, so we thought being in a band and doing gigs wouldn't be the thing to do. I'll have a sig. But we, um... Would you like a sig? See, we I'll, ended I'll up find doing a way to your American heart yet, though, I'll tell you. Here. Excuse me, sir. We ended up doing an American tour, which, um definitely prompted us to stop the band side of things and, com and concentrate on the company side of things. Both you and John have said that you don't want this to have anything to do with rock and roll. Why do you dislike rock and roll so it's much? It's dead, it's a disease, it's a plague, it's been going on for too long, it's history, it's vile, it's not achieving anything, it's just digression. They play rock and roll at airports, that's about as like advanced as it can possibly get but there it's was a too limited but there was a time when you didn't feel it that it is way. too much like a structure a church yeah but there was a, a religion a, a farce a time when you did not feel that way what made you No, change i've your... always felt this way even when you were with the sex pistols i wondered when you'd get round to that one yes even then because the sex pistols was going to be the absolute end of rock and roll which i thought it was Unfortunately, the majority of the public, being the senile animals that they are, got that wrong. Too bad. All they want is an image, something flash. Where did the name the Sex Pistols come from? Who thought that name up? Some animal, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. It's history. Well, I think history matters a little bit. When you say some animal, was this a member of the band that history made it? History does not matter. I mean, your program's called Tomorrow. There must be a reason behind that. Well, unless we remember our yesterdays, there will be no tomorrows. Getting back to public image. Beg your pardon? Getting back to pill.
All right, so you were not wrong. That is a that is a perfect ending. To you see, D, that, that it mix. works. It works. It completely works. That's the perfect way to end a mix. Our little mini mix, our ode to all of these artists who succeeded in their sophomore or beating the sophomore slump. The sophomore slump winners. Winners. They're winners. And I think we were winners too. Did we beat the sophomore slump? I mean, only time will tell. I don't know. Only time will tell. And once we get some, hopefully, we'll get some feedback from all of our all of our listeners, but I feel like we did. I feel comfortable with this. I feel like we could. Well, whether we did or we did not, I think there is going to be an episode three because then if we totally fell on our faces on this one, we got to come back strong <laughs> on the third sure. try. Sure. We got we'll, we to make our okay computer. We didn't talk about, we didn't talk about the bends, which is also a great sophomore slump. And that was, that, that was, was on the short list. And I did yeah. listen to that. And uh, no, it is because the sophomore slumps could be redefining yourself. I mean, Radiohead could have been a one hit wonder. Sure. Okay. Yeah, can they creep? Yeah, people recording that song on American Idol, whatever. And I would have still been a fan. Yeah. So our third, our next one, that will be our okay. We are going to, tra- yeah, we're going to transcend. <laughs> we're going to transcend our the, segment. We're going to change the face of podcasting forever. <laughs> and I am Dion from Lightning Licks Final Preservation and Society. I, and I am Jay from Lightning Licks Final Preservation Society as well. Uh, thanks for hanging out, and we're going to see you next month. We will see you next month. Thanks for hanging out. Bringing in that theme song. Theme song coming in. Oh yes, coming in. I love that theme song. Thanks. We'll get back to the credits in just a second. First of all, that Shalimar tune that was our bumper intro, second time around, that was a dollar bin record. It was totally underrated and underappreciated. And if you are under the assumption that disco has nothing to offer you, you are sorely mistaken. It's time to embrace the disco people. We just wanted to take a quick moment to spotlight some of the more meaningful Easter eggs that we hid in the audible grass that's the background of this episode. The band that you're hearing right now is Bev Clone, early 90s mid-Michigan hardcore, and that lead singer is Tommy Jenkins. Tommy had a profound impact on my life, musically and otherwise. There's no doubt in my mind that I wouldn't be creating or facilitating or sharing to this degree if it wasn't for his direct influence or the influence of his brothers or other close friends. Now that's a debt that I can never truly repay. Sadly, we had to add Toms to a list of names that we just wish we could call and talk to, a list of names that we're gonna miss every day since they left us. But that legacy, that never really leaves. It's been five years, Tom. I miss you. These sweet, syrupy riffs that you're hearing right now, that's courtesy of Jordan Priest of Beast in the Field. Now, Beast is no more, but Jordo is still as influential as ever. Seven years ago, he and his partner Jess opened up Electric Kitsch, Bay City, Michigan's only brick-and-mortar record store. It's new and used vinyl, vintage apparel and equipment. That place is just rad, and it's like our church. It's where we go to meet and to make friends. It's where we all belong. Lightning Licks would not exist if it wasn't for Electric Kitsch. It's as simple as that. Jordan and Jess, thank you so much. And these blubber-not sludge kittens, they're Whaler. Whaler is just a rad band from Saginaw. Adam, Bunny, and Lamba, I hope you never stop playing. Music in this episode by Lee Moses, Brothers Johnson, Corey O, Ugly Duffins, Common, Bobby Caldwell, Gene McDaniels, Gene McDaniels, Lori Anderson, Eddie Ross, Black Flag, Melvins, Drive Like Jehu, 
Fugazi, Sil Johnson, Public Enemy, Primials, Primal Scream, Group Home, Terminator Fifth, Terminator X in the Valley of the Jeep Beats, Wes McCann, Roy Ayers, Anthrax, Heat Speech, Pike Keach, The Struggles, The Stooges, Captain Beefheart, The Doors, David Bowie, Velvet Underground, The Rolling Stones, Screaming Blue Messiahs, Skite in a Doubt, oh, Psychedelic Furs, New Order, OMD, The Glove, Morphine, Chemical Brothers, The Cars, The Fix, Talking Heads, NXS, Erica Badu, D'Angelo, Smokey Robinson, A Tribe Called Quest, Tony Tony Tony, Jay Dilla, Cody Marsek, Big Thief, Hill, Bajas, Can, The Jesus and Mary Chain, Sonic Youth, The Stone Roses, Radiohead Covering Joy Division, David Sanborn, Susie and the Banshees, and Jellyfish. Thanks for sticking around with us. We'll see you next month. Lightning Lux is in the mix. And Ross faded with his dusty fingertips. We've been from digging in the bins at Electric Hitch. We are living the hits. We got Vulcan Soul and so much more. We got the hip hop, rip pop, new and old. We got the free jazz, punk rock, disco, gold, garage psych, dub, and acoustic funk. You request like, nah man, I think I left that LP at home It's on the shelf in my basement, that's where it belongs Sorry y'all Now don't get me wrong, I really do appreciate your input But I don't really need your stinking input Nah B, I'm just playing, just trying to play too The rule is what I'm saying Why waste your time on a top 40 hit list When you can prep platters like a catering business So fresh, I'm high five on my deck Maybe collaborate and jump it, that's teamwork baby You are the no B-side treat With the guts so deep to make your ear holes bleed Dusty groups and forgotten gems Sample sources from way back when You're like, hmm, that sounds familiar Well, it's Osley Bros Now Biggie Cupid in the bud is still ill And it still kills It's a bona fide hope for that For a last Lightning Lexus in the mix Big Ross faded with his dusty fingertips We go from digging in the bins at electric hitch We enough in the hits for the pie Because I'm older than you, right. I bought it in '88, and I wanted to know when you when you picked yeah, it up. I when I was like ten. So nine. how? What year was that then? Huh? I bought I, or I I got it in 1990, so I was 12. But yeah, we're gonna get into that. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's it is important that I I learned of them through do the right thing Spike, that my mom <laughs> accidentally let us rent, and then because Mars Blackman was in it. <laughs> 
Which I had not thought about myself. Yeah, like, we got the cassette from Curtis Mathis, like, which was... We used to rent all our shit from Curtis Mathis. (laughs) Like, what the... We bought our VCR from there, and they gave us, like, a bag of, like, free rentals. Like, I was still using, like, three years later, and Mm -hmm. they were were like, oh, you can't use these anymore. I'm like, my parents paid $800 for a VCR, because that's how much they were at the time. I'm going to use these until they're gone. They brought the manager in, and they're like, okay, you can keep using these then. Like, literally, I didn't rent a movie. I didn't pay for a movie for three years. I'm writing this shitty version of Rumpelstiltskin again. Because it's the only thing that's in right now. <laughs> Bob, literally, Bob used to get pissed because he always wanted to rent porn, and I wouldn't because I had a I had a crush on one of the girls that worked there. And I didn't want her to see me buying. I didn't want her to see me. I was buying. I was renting porn, <laughs> and Bob was always about the porn. Oh, Curtis Mathis! I love that place. <laughs> it was awesome. They had a good selection too. They really did. They were the only game in town, bro. They were. That's where I got rented movies there for like three years and didn't pay for one. <laughs> Well, you got an $800 VCR. <laughs> and those first VCRs were expensive as hell. Fuck yeah. yeah that was a big deal getting a VCR. My parents didn't have fucking cable, but they got a buy. They bought a goddamn VCR. Yeah, we'd pop the popcorn and Which shit. I love. That was yeah. badass. It was. Yeah, but we're, okay, next episode, Curtis Mathis. <laughs> <laughs> Live from the bank that's there now. Keeping it basically local. local. <laughs>